thank you for listening to the Unheard Documentary Podcast. I'm Sally Chatterton, the Deputy Editor of Unheard. The crisis in the Western model of capitalism is one of our key themes here at Unheard, and right now it doesn't seem able to deliver prosperity for all. Wealth inequality is currently twice as bad as income inequality, and it's getting worse. And so, Charlotte Pickles, Unheard's Capitalism Editor, asks, Can a wealth tax save capitalism? What has destroyed every previous civilization has been the tendency to the unequal distribution of wealth and power. The words of 19th century American political economist and anti-monopolist Henry George. Today, in the UK, the wealthiest 10% of households own 45% of the total wealth, while the bottom 50%, half of the entire nation, owns less than 10%. In America, the distribution of wealth is even less equitable. There, the top 10% own three quarters of the country's wealth, while the bottom 10% are in debt. Such profound inequality is typical across Western capitalist economies, where wealth and the power that flows from it is concentrated in the hands of a super elite. And it's getting worse. We may not, to paraphrase George, be facing the end of civilization, but we are facing a crisis in capitalism. Corbyn in the UK, Mélenchon in France, Iglesias in Spain, Sanders in America. Socialist platforms are garnering mass appeal and fighting inequality is at the heart of their message. For the many, not the few. That was Labour's 2017 general election campaign slogan. And surprisingly, in an era of social and economic division, it resonates. Nations across the West face a choice. Double down on a broken model of capitalism, one in which the richest get even richer and ordinary families fall further and further behind, or reform the model to make it work for all. Too much wealth is being generated, not from personal endeavor, but through speculation and luck, while equality of opportunity is being undermined by the transmission of privilege through inheritance. And the tax system is reinforcing this. We treat unearned income more generously than earned income. We have an opportunity to change that, though. Wealth taxes. I'm Charlotte Pickles, editor of Unheard's Capitalism Theme. I was an advisor in the coalition government, and I come from the centre-right of politics. I generally believe in low taxes and free markets. But I've come to the conclusion that when it comes to wealth inequality, that model isn't working, and it's time for a radical rethink. In this programme, I ask, can wealth taxes save capitalism? It's very easy to say, let's tax wealth. But what exactly does that mean? Wealth is the sum of someone's assets, which covers everything from property to pensions, land to luxury goods, and, 
of course, financial investments and savings. I asked Paul Johnson, head of the UK's Institute for Fiscal Studies and a leading expert on the tax system, what a wealth tax actually is. I think there are probably three different sorts of wealth tax, actually. One is a tax like an inheritance tax, which is a tax on the transfer of wealth. One is a tax on just the ownership of wealth, if you have to pay maybe 1% of all of your wealth each year or on a one-off basis. And thirdly, we often also think of wealth taxes as the tax on the return to wealth, so capital gains or any interest that you earn. And each of those three wealth taxes is actually very different in their, in their impact and in their applicability. There are, then several options. But while I think there is a compelling case for taxing wealth, does Paul, an economist and former Treasury official, agree? Wealth in the UK is incredibly unequally distributed. A very large fraction is held by the top 1% or 2% um, of the population. So if you want a more equal society. And actually, if you want a society in which there's more social mobility, because at the moment, increasingly, inheritance is becoming more and more important. Um, If you want a more equal and more socially just society, then you probably want to find some way of bringing back some of that wealth that's accumulated among a particular group, especially when you note that a large fraction of that, particularly for the very, very wealthiest, has either come because they're lucky enough to have inherited a lot themselves, um, or because they happen to have been very lucky in the stock market or or the housing market. If you're really, really focused on getting a more socially just society, then finding some way of unlocking some of that in a way that's not going to be economically harmful probably is something of a priority. I do want a society with more social mobility, where success is determined by effort, not inheritance and luck. And yet wealth inequality in the UK is getting worse. In the aftermath of the First World War, through the Second, and into the post-war period, wealth inequality in the UK declined. But since the 1980s, the wealthiest 10% and above have been increasing their share of household wealth. Not even the financial crash, which triggered the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, slowed that trend. Since 2010, the wealth of Britain's richest 10% has increased three times as fast as the wealth of the bottom 50%. Yet while the nation's wealth has been growing, as a percentage of GDP, the tax revenue raised from that wealth has barely changed since the 1950s. The welfare state is largely funded from taxes on labour, not capital, But that wasn't always the case. I asked economic historian and Cambridge University fellow Victoria Bateman about the history of taxation and why income rather than wealth taxes are the norm today. The tax system has expanded massively over the last um, century and income tax has really been the key driver behind that. But going back historically, wealth taxes and certainly the idea of taxing the rich was much more important. And of course, if we go back over the long history towards the times of serfdom in Europe, then you have two main social groups. You have your landowners and so you have with that the possibility of taxing land and you have your serfs who are really working at subsistence wages or the equivalent of subsistence wages and so very different to tax those. The evolution of taxation, therefore, starts with wealth, not income. Land was the principal source of wealth, and so was a legitimate source of taxation. 
The poor could not have afforded to pay taxes. But, as Victoria went on to explain, there was also a philosophical view developing that tax should be paid by the rich. Hence, the introduction of taxes on luxury goods such as wine and carriages. And as a more market economy developed, with increasing urbanisation, tax shifted with it. We start to see a shift to taxing property. And so we have the window tax, very famously, um, expanding through the 18th century and results in many um, rich people, for example, here in London, bricking up their, their windows to, in an effort to avoid paying that tax. And then there's a view that land and property tax alone are not enough to capture all of this new wealth generation going on in the economy. I think that's in part why you start to see greater emphasis on income taxes with time. By the early 20th century then, earnings, rather than wealth, had become the primary source of taxation. Today, almost half of the UK's tax base comes from income tax and national insurance, taxes on labour. While just 8% comes from taxes on capital and property. And while income tax rates are progressive, that compassionate 18th century view that the rich should shoulder the lion's share of the tax burden seems to have been lost. I believe that the tax pendulum has swung too far towards labour and away from capital. Wealth creation is, of course, a good thing. It's what drives an economy, creates jobs and funds public services. But increasingly, wealth is being accrued not through hard work and ingenuity, but as a result of asset inflation, wealth generating wealth. There's nothing fair or justifiable about that, and it's undermining people's faith in capitalism. I think wealth taxes are part of the answer, but while I'm sold on the principle, the practicalities of implementing wealth taxes are less clear-cut. One approach would be to increase taxes on specific assets, such as property, inheritance and financial investments, or replace the existing taxes on these types of wealth with more effective ones. A more radical approach would be to introduce a small percentage tax on someone's net wealth, as rock star economist Thomas Piketty advocates. Though his home nation, France, has just scrapped theirs, citing millionaire flight. Richard Leonard, leader of the Scottish Labour Party, wants to see this more radical approach for Scotland. He told me he wants to set alight the debate about a case for a wealth tax. The richest 1% of people in Scotland own more wealth than the whole of the poorest 50% put together. And it's long, I think, been understood that um, Income inequality has shown a rise, but actually the divergence, the inequality in wealth is actually growing at a much higher rate. If you simply levied a 1% windfall tax on the richest 10% of people in Scotland, that would bring in revenue of about £3.7 billion. So there's a deficit at the moment of 700 million. If by one measure you could raise as much as 3.7 billion pounds, then that gets us into uh, a different dimension in the level of support that we could uh, give to uh, public services. 
I'm sympathetic to the idea of a small net wealth tax on the super rich, but nearly every country that has levied one has subsequently abandoned it, not least as they don't end up raising much revenue. That's because the rich are very good at avoiding taxes. And while some wealth, land and property, for example, is not mobile, other forms of wealth are. In Sweden, for example, their wealth tax, abolished in 2006, typically raised just 0.5 to 1% of annual tax revenue. The administrative burden was not justified by the tax return. I asked Richard how his windfall wealth tax would avoid the practical challenges that other countries have faced. I think that um, it would be possible through a windfall tax to levy a a revenue raising generator from wealth. And I think it's also sometimes a question about political will. Uh, And political will isn't just about the determination of political leaders, although that's part of it. It's also about creating a climate of public opinion where people do think that this is the right thing to do. I'm pretty relaxed that we would be able to um, find a way of collecting and implementing that kind of taxation regime. Richard's proposal is ambitious, but I think it's unworkable. For a start, he would have to be able to identify and measure all types of wealth, not just land and property. Second, even if fine art, luxury cars and diamond necklaces could be valued... How do you prevent them, along with financial assets, being moved, even temporarily, abroad? I asked Conservative Member of Parliament and Tory traditionalist Jacob Rees-Mogg what he thought about the idea of a one-off windfall tax. Windfall taxes on wealth are extremely silly because you've got annual expenditure needs that are not bet by a one-off windfall tax and you can't tax... Uh, wealth every year at the level required for a windfall tax. So what you do is you have a lot of money in one year, you hugely distort the economy, you have a very profound effect on asset prices because suddenly a lot of people with assets need to turn them into cash and have to uh, therefore liquidate their assets. Uh, That inevitably on a supply and demand basis has an effect on prices Um, and is very economically distortive. So it's the worst economic approach to raising revenue. We spoke to Richard Leonard, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, who is proposing a one-off 1% levy, so windfall wealth tax, uh, on the richest 10%. What do you think might be some of the immediate impacts of levying that kind of tax? Well... First of all, the richest 10% will include some people who don't consider themselves to be in the least bit rich. You will find people working in the public sector will be included in that top 10%. Be pretty shocked when they've got to pay a tax on the family home. Uh, The richest 1%, they'll be fine. They will just make sure that they are living for more of the year in their English residence and in their Scottish residence. And under the devolution of tax powers to Scotland, they will then be exempt. An annual or one-off tax on net wealth is not, then, a viable option. Howard Glenister, a London School of Economics professor who researched Labour's abandoned 1974 manifesto pledge to introduce an annual wealth tax, reached the same conclusion. But surely that can't be the end of the story. I asked Howard whether critics of wealth taxes are right, that they're either avoided through clever accounting and offshoring 
or they end up discouraging entrepreneurialism and investment and therefore do more harm than good. Well, I think in the long run, they have the opposite effect. You can't both be in favour of equality of opportunity or something that's remotely like it and have massive inequalities in wealth with which people begin the race. I mean, if you had a, a competition, a four-lap race, in which you said, well, some people start at the beginning. Other people can only can start halfway through. And there are a few people who only really have to run 100 yards. And you have to ask yourself, who on earth would engage in such a competition? And if the answer is virtually nobody, well, who's going to believe in and take part in an economy that's run like that? And so a fair system of wealth distribution, I think, underpins any belief in a competitive or capitalist system. We must not accept as inevitable the increasing concentration of wealth and therefore power in the hands of a hyper-elite. A fairer tax system is needed, and the public agree. Nearly 60% of British people think the government should do more to reduce wealth inequality. Morally and economically, there is no excuse for maintaining a status quo that favours unearned income over hard work, the wealthy over the just about managing. So, in the spirit of saving capitalism, I offer my wealth tax manifesto. One, increase the tax on capital gains. Two, introduce a land value tax. And three, introduce an accession or gift tax to properly tax gifts and inheritance. If that sounds all very technical, don't worry. We're about to find out exactly what it means. I discussed each proposal with experts to explore the pros and cons. In Britain, a capital gain is the profit made from the sale of a property or investment. Capital gains tax is currently levied at either 20 or 28%. That compares to income tax rates of 20, 40 and 45%, with national insurance payments on top. The incentive, therefore, is to convert earnings into capital gains in order to pay less tax. I've come to the Houses of Parliament, the seat of British democracy, where taxes have been legislated for for centuries. I've come to talk to Bernard Jenkin, a small-state Conservative who's been a Member of Parliament for over 25 years. I want to ask him about capital gains tax and whether he believes it should be increased to match the tax rates on earnings. I would abolish capital gains tax altogether because taxes on capital frustrates people from actually deploying their capital effectively. Where you have high capital gains tax rates, you will freeze up people's wealth in assets that become unproductive and they won't move them because they're not prepared to pay the tax. So you're always going to need to distinguish between capital and income. One of the things that we have seen over the last few decades is this massive asset inflation. So, um, you know, people holding properties or again, stocks and shares, where the increase in the value of those things has just, you know, 
absolutely rocketed, not because they've done anything, um, really through pure luck, or if anything, through the hard work of others. So is there an argument to say that we should be looking at wealth taxes on excessive returns? So for example, like on property where there has been a massive inflation in its value? No, because if you start introducing you know, excessive profits taxes or excessive capital gains taxes, you're going to create so many complicated distortions and so much complexity. And the people you want to catch will not be caught. And the revenue you will raise will be less than you expect to raise. And the people who get hurt are the people who you don't really want to hurt. That is always the story of these taxes designed to trap the rich. The fact is what we want to do is to encourage more wealth creation, not to punish those who have been successful at creating wealth. Is it really punishing wealth creation by taxing capital gains? Do we really think it's fair that a property speculator pays a lower rate of tax than a shift worker earning average wages? Or that the bank CEO, whose earnings are paid via stock options, pays a lower rate of tax than their branch manager? To me, that makes no sense. And where assets have been inflated through the work or investment of others, like property that rises in value as a result of new transport links, or company shares that have been boosted by the efforts of employees, the discrepancy is even more unfair, because those capital gains are not earned. I asked Professor of Social Policy, Howard Glenister, whether he thinks there is a good reason to treat unearned income more generously than earned income. The principle from which one ought to begin is that you should be taxing at the same rate whatever kind of effort or activity, like seeking capital gains, you're engaging in. So you should start from the principle that all of these activities should be taxed at the same rate. Not only is this a fair point, but it's also one that helps to avoid people rushing around using a great deal of effort to turn something into a capital gain, which might have been an income from work or vice versa. And the more of these traps you form for people, the more effort they exert and the less fair everybody feels it is in the outcome. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg, advocate of low taxes, agrees. One of the main reasons for capital gains tax is that it's there to stop disguised earnings being turned into capital gain. And it's probably the best argument for capital gains tax. Do I agree that income, however it's dressed up, uh, decorated, should be taxed at the same rate? Yes, I do. The second proposition in my wealth tax manifesto is a land value tax, which has long been championed by economists. Adam Smith, the 18th century father of modern capitalism, wrote, As soon as the land of any country has all become private property, the landlords, like all other men, love to reap where they never sowed and demand a rent even for its natural produce. Former Prime Minister Winston Churchill felt the same. All the while, the land monopolist only has to sit still and watch complacently his property multiplying in value, sometimes many-fold, without either effort or contribution on his part. It is a tax which has found supporters on both the left and the right. Tom Copley, a Labour member of the London Assembly, is proposing a land value tax for London. I went to City Hall 
to ask him why. Well, I think there are a couple of major advantages that a land value tax has. First of all, it taxes away unearned wealth. So the value of land is largely determined by other factors, not by uh, the effort of the person who happens to own the piece of land. Uh, it's often determined by major investment that goes in by the public sector, for example, building a new railway, which raises the value of the land. The landowner's done nothing to earn that uh, money, but suddenly they've got a lot wealthier. But also it has a second advantage, which is it's an incentive to get the best use out of a piece of land. So it uh, ought to stimulate house building because you have to pay it regardless of whether or not a land is developed. It incentivizes getting the maximum return out of that land in forms of rent. And the best way to do that is to build some houses or to build some offices, not to sit on vacant land uh, and speculate. How much might you anticipate that the land value tax would raise in revenue? Well, it's difficult to say how much it would uh, raise. You could construct it so that it was fiscally uh, neutral and simply replaced to the value of all of the taxes it was replacing. But of course, hopefully what the system would do is mean that bigger landowners, like, for example, the Duke of Westminster, ends up paying a lot more, which would therefore raise the amount of uh, revenue. But the important thing about a land value tax is it's a however you construct it really is a much more equitable way of raising that money. So the big landowners will end up paying a lot more. The land speculators will end up paying a lot more. And of course, it should disincentivise land speculators from sitting on undeveloped land in any case. Tom makes a compelling case, as those giants of history before him did. His model of a land value tax that replaces the UK's currently highly regressive council tax, plus business rates, would be a much fairer system. Other countries like Australia, Finland and Estonia already use land taxes. Even some US cities, for example Pittsburgh, have employed a land tax, raising revenue without damaging the city's economy. Economist Henry George referred to a land value tax as the most just and equal of all taxes. It is the taking by the community for the use of the community of that value which is the creation of the community. There is no good reason not to introduce a land value tax, only a failure of political will, and that is inexcusable. The third and final proposition of my Wealth Tax Manifesto concerns inheritance. Here's President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1935. The desire to provide security for oneself and one's family is natural and wholesome, but it is adequately served by a reasonable inheritance. Great accumulations of wealth cannot be justified on the basis of personal and family security. Creative enterprise is not stimulated by vast inheritances. They bless neither those who bequeath nor those who receive. When someone dies, they are taxed on the estate they leave behind, if its value is over a certain threshold. In reality, the level of that threshold, plus a raft of reliefs and exemptions, means few people actually pay inheritance tax. But as economist and former Treasury official Paul Johnson points out, that doesn't make it any less unpopular. 
People have very, very different uh, ethical views about inheritance tax. Where you get problems with these sorts of taxes is if you can't get it in a fair manner. So why is inheritance tax so unpopular, despite being probably the most progressive? I think it's because the genuinely wealthy don't pay very much. So if you have a wealth tax in which the genuinely wealthy manage to avoid it, it's going to be a seriously unpopular tax. Popularity, however, is no measure of how effective or how just a tax is. Income from inheritance is unearned income, the same as capital gains, and should be taxed. I agree with John Stuart Mill, who wrote, Inheritance and legacies, exceeding a certain amount, are highly proper subjects for taxation. I asked Bernard Jenkin whether, at a time when social mobility seems to be in decline, we need a greater focus on inheritance tax. No. <laughs> um, inheritance tax has been a very destructive tax. If you've built up your capital during your lifetime, you should be entitled to leave it to whom you please. But not everyone on the right agrees. James Kirkup, director of the Westminster-based think tank The Social Market Foundation and former political editor at The Telegraph newspaper, is unequivocal. Very simply, nobody earns their parents' house. Nobody earns something that they inherit. And you know, I'm quite keen that we have a tax system that reflects and rewards the efforts that people make. And it doesn't matter what efforts you put into uh, life if your parents pass on a big house to you. Your inheritance is in no way reflective of your industry, your talents. I think tax should be higher, uh, certainly in, in a world of constrained choices. If you have to tax something, if the government has to raise money from somewhere, I would much rather it found that money from unearned inheritances than by either levying tax on or reducing you know, your payments to people who are, uh, who are working and earning often low incomes. I agree with James. While I get the desire of parents to pass on their wealth to their children, I think it is completely legitimate for the state to tax that wealth and in doing so reduce inequality. But I think there's a better way of achieving that goal than inheritance tax. An accession tax. I asked Howard Glenister, a proponent of this type of tax, to explain how it would work and what the benefits are. I tend to think of it as a gifts tax. Um... What I'm advocating is taxing people in relation to what they receive. So that if somebody receives a great many inheritances from a wide range of wealthy relatives, that sum of money that they have, as it were, acquired over their lifetime is taxed at a higher rate than somebody who just gets a small sum of money from one relative. In other words, what you're trying to tax is the lifetime's acquisition of money and resources that others have given you. The more you gain, the more you gain, the more you're taxed. And that would have two effects. One, it would seem to be fair to people, but it would also encourage people to themselves spread the amount they give between recipients. Instead of giving it all to the eldest child, as it were, they would have an incentive to spread their giving. Often, people on the right, so conservatives, seem to be very against 
taxing wealth. I really can't understand this because it seems very unconservative to me to reward people who have done nothing, who haven't worked for that income or that wealth. It seems very conservative to me to make sure that you are rewarding people who have put in the effort and the hard work, who have earned their money via endeavour. Do you think that's fair? I think that's absolutely right. The more difficult it becomes to acquire wealth, because all the rich and the powerful are wealthy, the less support there will be for a conservative kind of society. I have heard nothing that dissuades me and much that encourages me about my manifesto. Number one, treating income from capital and from labour equally, which means raising capital gains tax to match the combined rates of income tax and national insurance. Number two, introducing a land value tax, replacing council tax and business rates and valuing the land based on its optimal use so as not to discourage development. And number three, replacing inheritance tax with a lifetime accession or gift tax, giving everyone a personal allowance and taxing all gifts above that allowance. Simple. So why hasn't it already been done? I took my tax manifesto to Nick McPherson, former head and 30-year veteran of Her Majesty's Treasury, to ask, would it work? What do you think is stopping a land value tax being introduced, particularly if it could replace other unpopular property taxes? I think politicians have always been very cautious about increasing taxes on housing. They see the homeowner as a key constituency. And historically, they've always also been particularly focused on the old folk. So this is a constituency which um, politicians feel they upset at their peril. I think that the politics of this may well have changed in um, recent years as old people begin to worry about their children and grandchildren and may be prepared to take a bigger hit in terms of property taxation, the better to make property affordable. I think there's a pretty compelling case for replacing inheritance tax with an accession or a gift tax. So rather than taxing the person who has died, you tax the person who's receiving that wealth. Um, and you would take into account everything that that person had received over their lifetime in terms of gifts and inheritance. Do you think it would be possible to implement that kind of tax? I'm quite certain it would be possible to implement that tax. The, the politics of an accessions tax is, is difficult, which is, I think, why politicians have tended to steer clear of it. An accessions tax taxes the living. An inheritance tax, in a sense, taxes the dead. I know in the end, these things actually do slightly merge into each other. But pursuing all these individuals, having to calculate their individual taxes is by its nature more difficult than taxing a lumpy estate. But all that said, I do think it's uh, an idea which merits further discussion. It, it was looked at extensively in the 1970s, but I'm very struck that nobody in my time at the Treasury really examined it in any detail. 
I think it's absurd that capital gains are taxed at a lower rate than labour. And that's both in terms of fairness. So the gain is often actually the result of speculation or luck and not the result of effort, but also because it incentivizes people to channel what are in reality earnings through capital gains. Why wouldn't we treat income the same regardless of where it comes from? I think we should seek to tax capital gains on the same basis as income. That would uh, ensure that decisions were not distorted by the tax system. But the sad fact is that, in my experience, politicians come to a budget and they think, I must do something for business, I must do something for enterprise, particularly small businesses. And if you're an entrepreneur, the capital gains which you have to pay when you sell your business can be considerable. So if it was left to me, I would far prefer to have aligned taxes, I'd have lower rates, I'd get rid of a lot of the reliefs which are available and seek to align the top rate of capital gains and income tax at around 35%, if it has to be 40%, so be it. But at the moment, the current regime simply encourages people to recycle perfectly good income and disguise it as capital gains. It is politics then, rather than the practicalities, that is the barrier to tax reform. But for friends of capitalism, a failure of political will may well mean its decline. The alternative to acting, to renewing people's faith in the free market model, is an anti-capitalist backlash. Capitalism's proponents should remember that its success lies in people's perception of it as fair. Not only that rewards match the effort put in, but that those who prosper pay their fair share of tax. As Adam Smith wrote, it is not very unreasonable that the rich should contribute to the public expense, not only in proportion to their revenue, but something more than in that proportion. That, surely, is the sign of a compassionate, civilised country. The alternative, in a democratic society, is that the people reject a model they see as rigged, as benefiting a wealthy few, as fundamentally unfair. That is not an empty threat. Across the West, anti-capitalist parties have been gaining ground. In the UK, hard left Jeremy Corbyn was a whisker away from winning last year's general election. Polling on people's voting intentions consistently puts the Labour leader ahead. In America, self-proclaimed socialist Bernie Sanders could well have beaten Donald Trump had he been the Democratic candidate in 2016. He may yet do so in 2020. These candidates would spell economic disaster, not just for the wealthy, but for the working people that those on the hard left purport to champion. Capitalism is the great engine of social progress, but it has lost its way and deep and urgent reform is needed. So now is the time to act. Now is the time to reset the rules. A more equal wealth distribution is essential to restoring people's faith in capitalism. A fairer system of taxation 
one that taxes wealth as a source of income, is a small price to pay for that. <laughs> 